Welcome to Cut To, a new podcast from the Writers Guild of Canada. In each episode, we'll be focusing in on a particular subject relevant to Canadian screenwriters, whether it's a writer's body of work, a specific aspect of the craft, or a pressing industry issue. In our first episode, we cut to Susan Nielsen, screenwriter extraordinaire, whose work includes writing on the OG Degrassi High, Degrassi The Next Generation, and creating the popular CBC series Robson Arms. Her most recent creation is the upcoming global TV series Family Law, on which she also serves as showrunner. Join me, your host JP LaRock, and Susan as we discuss everything from how COVID-19 impacted production on Family Law, to the challenges of making overtly Canadian content in Canada, to the glory of naps. We hope you'll enjoy it. Susan, it is lovely to meet you. Um, uh, you know, I do wish that we were doing this in person, that we were sitting across from each other instead of through, you know, Zoom. But I feel like Zoom yeah. is, is very much a product of our time. So, uh, you know, and, and a reflection of our reality at the moment. Um, but yeah, I do. I, I hope one day that we can kind of sit across from each other and continue this conversation. I do um, too. And we and we know people in common, like the fabulous Corey Liu. So yes, Corey's yes. awesome. He's a he's great. I did the uh, yeah. WGC diversity program with him. He's he's awesome. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I wanted to talk to you. I mean, the, the our chat's going to be kind of formatted into two sections. The first is talking a bit about family law specifically, and then kind of transitioning a little bit into talking about your career kind of in a more broad sense. But I did want to talk to you, you know, about family law, which, uh, you know, for folks who are listening, uh, family law is, you know, it's an upcoming show on Global, uh, a drama about uh, a lawyer and recovering alcoholic named Abigail, uh, who, uh, as the re- kind of the result of her probation, has to work with her estranged father at his uh, family law firm, uh, and alongside two half-siblings, uh, both of whom she doesn't know very well. Um, so kind of the premise is very much, you know, it's a dysfunctional family professionally helping other dysfunctional families, which like the moment I heard it, I was like, this is great. Like a, mil- a million stories hatched in my brain where I was like, this is going to be so much fun to see. Um, but I wanted to talk to you about uh, about the show and kind of what what was the creative seed for it? Like, how did how did you come up with the idea for Family Law? Well, um, it's it's got a bit of a history. Um, I I first uh, came up with the idea in 2012, and um, I was looking to try my hand at a procedural. Um, I I don't naturally gravitate toward procedurals. Um, and I knew I, I probably didn't have a cop show in me. I probably didn't have a hospital show in me. Um, but um, when I thought about family law, it intrigued me. Um, and then there's my own family background, uh, which is in some ways uh, similar to Abigail's because I grew up with a single parent mom. My dad left before I was born. I didn't meet my dad until I was a teenager. Um, And of course, Abigail has been estranged from her father for 33 of her 40 years. Um, When I met my dad um, at his dad's funeral, in fact, I also met my half brother and half sister (laughs) from his next marriage. Um, And so that, of course, I think for all of us, Our family story is something that really sticks with us. And I suspect probably for all writers, it sticks with us in some form or another. And certainly mine has very much stuck with me. Um, And just in terms of all the range of emotions, I, I should point out, I love my dad. I love my stepmother. I love my half brother and half sister. I love all the various elements of my of my family. Um, but uh, I think you carry the emotional weight of some of that stuff that's gone on. And so that was something that I brought to the table with family law in terms of that dynamic. Yeah. N- nice. And I mean, like, you know, you like, you're one of those kind of like those writers who does a lot like you you know you work you work in television you also have done a considerable amount of work with within YA writing kind of YA fiction you know what was it specifically about this premise that you were like this is this is a tv show this is like I feel this as a tv show as opposed to a book 
Uh, oh, yeah. Interesting question. Well, uh, I don't know. I mean, I'd never write a book with law stuff in it, I suppose. But um, um, for me, I suppose uh, the lead Abigail was very vivid for me. Um, I think that, you know, I probably share a few things in common with Abigail. Fortunately, I don't share uh, the alcoholism, um, but certainly I share uh, perhaps her sometimes level of immaturity um, and her uh, sometimes, uh, you know, she's quick with the barbs, um, et cetera. Um, and what really interests me most always is actually <laughs> less the procedural stuff and more the emotional stuff and the character stuff. And so because I could start with this woman who it's kind of family on three levels because um, she's having to go work with her estranged father who's played by Victor Garber, which is a dream come true for me. Um, and she's having to work with this half brother and half sister who she has, has barely known in her lifetime. Um, at the same time, she's trying to win back her husband and her two children because she's blown up all of that spectacularly and her husband has temporary custody of the kids. And then the third level of family is these other families that they're trying to help. And so um, what I love is that at every single level, you're really able to dig into um, emotion, uh, history, in the cases themselves, uh, we try very hard. It's not to say we don't have villains because of course, um, you know, we clearly, you know, land on a certain side of many of these uh, cases and people, but we always try to explore all sides of the story as well. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what really draws me is that it's, it's such rich emotional terrain and there's, a lot of you know poignancy in the show but there's also a lot of humor and that really appeals to me as a writer like I love writing stuff that both hopefully gets you you know in the heart but also gets you in the funny bone yeah yeah I mean I, I definitely I mean even just kind of you know doing a bit of research in advance of our, our chat I mean humor is like is is huge like that runs through consistently your work I think both again, familial, familial trauma to a degree, but also kind of a lightheartedness and a hope, right? Which is lovely. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, I had one a writer once uh, accused me of being a Pollyanna, <laughs> the writer. Um, and, you know, there's a little bit of an element of truth to that, I suppose. I mean, I'm not, I, I'm not a Pollyanna and I certainly have my share of cynicism, um, but I do, um, I, I don't like going to super dark places in most of my writing. I mean, I have done it periodically, um, but even when I go to dark places, I always try to have the humor. And I guess, especially just given, you know, the state of the world that we're in right now, um, I'm, I'm really happy to be working on a show that, that absolutely is a feel good show, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, and I, I mean, it's almost, that's a great transition because I was going to speak to you specifically about, you know, again, talking about kind of that initial seed of the show coming up with the idea for family law, you know, moving through this process, which, you know, again, it's like, I think you said, did you say 2012 was kind of the initial, that initial seed? Um, yes. Yeah. It was actually uh, in development uh, first at the CBC. Okay. Um, yeah. So we wrote a, I wrote a couple of scripts and a Bible and then um, they took a pass in 2014. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, so, and then, so you've gone, kind of gone through, you've done all of that creative work, kind of building that world. You come through to 2020, uh, March of 2020 in particular, which is like the month when <laughs> the first shutdown happens, but also was when your show was due to go to camera. Um, I mean, where, like from a writing standpoint, were all the scripts completed at that point in March? Well, because, I mean, because it had had a, a previous development uh, phase and then, um, uh, I mean, just if you don't mind, I'll just, I'll go back to 2018 because we pitched it in at Banff mm -hmm. um, in June of 2018. And that's when we got global on side. So I was very, I was very lucky. First of all, I have to say, 
um, props to the producers at 724 because they had never given up on the idea mm-hmm. and they saw this other opportunity. So, and then Global put it into development um, a few months later. Um, and I am actually coming around to answering your question, I swear. <laughs> I, lo- uh, I love all of this, so keep going, please. <laughs> I'm, I'm a master at the tangent. Um, so so uh, over those next few months, I think they gave us development money for two more scripts and we had shown them the pilot. And so I wrote a brand new script and Ken Craw wrote a script. So at that point we had three scripts. Then they gave us a bunch more development money for, I think it was four more scripts. Mm. And so uh, now that took us quite a while later, I guess that took us into 2019. Mm -hmm. And because I remember that summer, uh, Sarah Dodd, Sonia Bennett, Corey Liu, Mm -hmm. Ken, Damon Vignale, uh, Ken Cross, sorry, I should use his last name too, Damon Vignelli and myself got together in a room and we wrote um, four more episodes. So then by the time we got into, then they greenlit us and we got into pre-production in December, early pre-production, December, 2019. Mm-hmm. And by that point, um, we we were starting to work on the last few scripts. Come March, we got into production for two weeks. We shot two weeks. <laughs> so we were block shooting two episodes at a time. So we got through two thirds of two episodes. Oh my gosh. So we didn't have a completed episode, nothing like that. Um, and then we shut down along with the rest of the world, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and then we were shut down for four months. Mm-hmm. So certainly over those four months, um, you know, we managed to get uh, the scripts pretty much written. Um, mm-hmm. there, the, the season finale, which I wrote, I think we, that one um, wasn't completely finished, but um we did have, you know, if we're going to look at, I suppose, any, you know, benefits from COVID, we certainly had time to hone those scripts, that's for sure. So by the time we came back into production, we were in exceptional shape. That's great. I mean, because I, yeah. I was going to ask where I'm like, you know, so many creators, so many folks who have, you know, had shows kind of in various stages of progress during this time, I mean, the, the the pandemic has required so much pivoting, right? Pivoting in terms of like the physical realities of production, but also creatively too. So it's interesting to hear that, you know, obviously the benefit of having that additional time to hone the scripts, but I mean, you know, did you decide, like, were, did you have to change a lot to, you know, what was written and what was conceptualized. You know, it, some showrunners talk about how COVID-19, they choose not to address it at all within the world of their show. Some folks decide to take it on, you know, right away. Or even if perhaps there were specific plot lines that might, you know, uncomfortably align themselves with things that would feel outdated or inappropriate. Um, like, how did you how did you handle that kind of pivot? Was, was there a big pivot creatively on the show? We were, we were quite lucky. There wasn't a huge pivot. Um, I think because, I mean, we're not a show with great big crowd scenes, interestingly. I mean, we do have things in courtrooms, but they tend not to be packed courtrooms. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's family law. So you might have a handful of people in the courtroom. Um, uh, Our season finale we did need a lot of people in the courtroom, but I, all I can say there is that I think we came up with a super creative solution for that. Um, mostly, honestly, it wasn't that onerous for us. We had to think about sometimes how many people were in a scene, did everybody need to be there? Should we cram all of these people into Harry's office or could we have them out in the office bullpen area where there was more space, et cetera? Um, I do recall we went through the scripts and took out all the handshaking 
that for me is something that should just disappear entirely. Although a couple of handshakes still crept in. It was funny. Some of the actors still automatically shook hands on occasion. Um, but, uh, you know, we're not, you know, we're not a, a, a sex filled show either. We do have a couple, a few moments. Um, and obviously, you know, those were instances where we spoke privately to each of the actors involved. Um, they, were very careful to keep their bubbles extremely small. They were tested, um, you know, at appropriate times before, uh, after those scenes. Um, but we didn't, we were pretty fortunate in that we didn't have to creatively make huge shifts. Mm -hmm. And COVID is absolutely not a part of our show because my feeling is that pe people are going to be really happy to not be reminded of it when they watch our show. We mm -hmm. do have one episode um, that was written um, uh, before COVID happened um, where Abby has to represent an anti-vaxxer. Interesting. And I find that kind of interesting, <laughs> you know, just since I'm sure we'll be hearing more from them uh, when the COVID vaccine is ready. Yeah, absolutely. It, it definitely yeah. the, the stakes, the stakes shifted somewhat in that conversation. Right. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you, I mean, the other thing is, too, and you mentioned this a little bit earlier, you know, you had kind of the initial room, which was a physical in-person room in 2019. Uh, did you reconvene at all um, when you were working on the scripts in 2020? Was that like, a, did you do a Zoom room? Did you do any of that kind of um, consultation online? We did, uh, we did Zoom rooms, yes, but we were lucky because um, by the time we got there, we weren't breaking story. Mm -hmm. We were actually working on, um, oh, I mean, it was at least outlines at that point. So we were responding to outlines. Um, mm -hmm. We've been very fortunate in that um, uh, Chorus has given us a bunch of development and funding for a potential season two. Mm -hmm. um, and we managed to squeeze in <laughs> Uh, I guess seven days together, mm -hmm. physically distanced around a huge table mm -hmm. um, where we broke the stories. We got the kind of season character arcs, broke five stories just to write our story pitches. Mm -hmm. um, and once those story pitches were approved, <laughs> our Bonnie Henry here, she's our... Um, You've got um, Teresa Tam, I think. Mm -hmm. Is she is she provincial for you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Bonnie Henry came out with her new restrictions. So when we started breaking the outlines, that went on to Zoom. Um, okay. And I was actually, I was super resistant. I thought that was going to be really hard. I mean, I wasn't resistant about keeping my team safe. But I thought that was going to be a weird process. But because we'd lucked out and got those seven days and got, you know, some structure, mm -hmm. it was surprisingly fluid. Um, and we used a program called Trello that Corey introduced us to. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and it worked. It worked really well. I find it really interesting when I talk to to different like showrunners, different folks who are working on shows right now. Like I've been in a couple uh, different Zoom rooms, and you have some folks. And I mean, I get you 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 mentioned it, but it's like some folks who are absolutely like, "Ugh, Zoom, no, no, thank you, I don't want to do this." Then some folks are like, "You know what, Zoom." is incredibly focused work. I find the team really productive. It, there are benefits to it. There are drawbacks to it. I mean, did you find, did you find the experience to be like an inconvenience or did you find it, did you find some benefit to it as well? Hey, if I'm totally honest, I kind of wound up falling in, falling in love with it. Um, <laughs> but it's funny because um, I'm not particularly good at Zoom when it comes to other things. Like we had a lot of our, production meetings, um, uh, concept meetings, you know, now all of our spotting sessions are on Zoom. We've had a lot of, oh, I don't know, like opening title concept meetings on Zoom. Like there's a lot, there've been a lot of meetings on Zoom. And I think if I had been born later than I was born, I 
probably would have been diagnosed with ADD <laughs> because like I, I get, I get on these calls and like, if I start getting bored, I'm doing like, I can't, I cannot focus. I'm just, I can't stand it. I get up and I move around with the laptop. I make everybody crazy because I can't sit still. Mm -hmm. um, but when we did the story meetings, it's exactly like some of the other folk you've spoken with. Mm -hmm. I mean, first of all, I love story. My team loves story. That's what we love to do. Mm -hmm. um, we love our show. We love our characters. And so we were laser focused. And so we would have, we were, we'd meet nine to five and we structured it that we took a 15 minute break in the morning, a 15 minute break in the afternoon, plus a couple other small breaks to pee. Mm -hmm. And then we would take an hour for lunch and like I could go out for a walk, get some fresh air. A couple of times I even got in a, like a 20 minute power nap. Um, <laughs> and then we were accomplishing so much. That's another thing I'm really good at is naps. Um, and Same and, here, same here. Oh, hey, right on. I'm, I'm a napper, so I, I feel that. Me too. <laughs> naps are like seriously underrated. And do, do people make fun of you for being a, a good napper? I mean, it's interesting because my, my partner is not a napper. So he'll right. always, he doesn't get it. Like to him, he's like, <laughs> you know what? Like, what is the benefit of this? I lie down. If I do fall asleep, I wake up feeling more tired. And I'm like, no, no, no. There's a science to this. Like if you yeah. time it properly, if you keep it short and focused, it is like, it is just like, it's like plugging yourself back into the wall, right? Like you're just getting that little boost of energy. It absolutely is. I'm with you. My husband also kind of pokes fun uh, about the naps, although I've, I've sort of semi-converted him, but anyway. <laughs> I feel like eventually you can bring people on board with naps. Naps, you can bring naps on, you can bring people on board. It's, I think it's a good creative rejuvenation. For um, sure. Yeah. Um, what did I actually, I heard an author at the Vancouver Writers Festival. She, she once described it as she didn't call it a nap. She said, I'm going to go and, um, it was something like, I'm going to creatively release my subconscious. So like she made it sound like she was still working. Like I'm going to go lie down and, and work and release my subconscious so that the ideas can flow. I thought, oh, that's brilliant. So yeah. I mean, I have to say formulating a nap as like an extension of your work where you're like, no, 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 this is writer's process. Yeah. Like I am, I am palate cleansing. I am getting myself like where I need to be. No, yeah. that, that, that makes, that makes sense to me. So yeah, I often figure out a scene, like as I'm just drifting off, I figure out the scene. I'm like, oh, that's great. I can write that as soon as I'm. <sighs> yeah. yes. The important thing is, do you remember it when you wake up? That's the key part. I actually do. Most of the time I do. But uh, so we, we, anyway, that was, that was a nice, another nice tangent, but um, <laughs> I wound up really enjoying it. And, and oftentimes we would wrap by, like 4.30 at the latest, because we accomplished so much. Mm -hmm. um, so I became a bit of a convert. I wouldn't want to have to do that very initial breaking. Um, but for everything beyond that, um, I thought it worked really well. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I'm also a convert in that way. I do find that it is very focused working, which I appreciate. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I wanted to ask you, like one of the things that I've noticed kind of in reading up about family law and kind of its creation, uh, the Vancouver setting is a huge part of it. And I think that anybody who works in the industry is very familiar with the challenge, uh, the challenges involved in making a show, a Canadian show, have a strong sense of place, right? Because it's like, whether you're talking about Toronto or they're talking about Vancouver, these are places where they're hubs of production, lots of shows get made, but most of the time the shows are being made where it's like Vancouver is Gotham City or Toronto is like New York or, you know, it's always playing somewhere else. Um, how, like, was it challenging when you were kind of pitching and creating Family Law to have the show be set in Vancouver? Was it be, was it setting kind of like central to the idea? Like were you, was from the very beginning, were you like this idea, this show, Vancouver, this is where it needs to happen. And did you have to fight it all, uh, you know, in terms of bringing it to life? Was there any pressure to kind of change that setting or, or anything like that? Um, in its original 
phase of development um, at the CBC. Um, what I recall, um, and this is, I'm not, I'm not knocking the CBC in any way, because um, I don't, I don't even recall if it was um, them who were pushing it, but. Um, I do remember that I had to make a couple of trips to Calgary where um, 724 is uh, located um, and, and look around at neighborhoods and places in Calgary because there was the, the feeling that um, if the show got picked up, um, that we may have to locate it in Calgary. Mm -hmm. um, I'm assuming that was probably budget related, mm -hmm. but I, I honestly can't remember because it was so long ago. Mm -hmm. um, this time around, there was chatter at the beginning about possibly um, Calgary again. And I was really fighting against that um, for a number of reasons. And, and I should say that nobody was fighting me back in a big way. It wasn't like, um, uh, and believe me, like 724, they have been amazing mm -hmm. uh, producing partners um, beyond certainly anything I've ever experienced, honestly. Um, yeah, I, it would be interesting to touch on that, too, because um, I've never seen producers go to bat for their creator um, in a way that they have done on a number of occasions, which mm -hmm. I've really appreciated. Um, but I do... Um, recall that we were discussing and again I think that was largely um budget uh Calgary and I was really pushing back um for a couple of reasons number one uh I'm just at the point in my life where like I'm not going to relocate I love my city um right. I didn't want to go live in Calgary for a number of months no offense to anybody in Calgary mm -hmm. um but secondly um for me this show I like to see my characters kind of living in the world, same mm -hmm. as in my books. All my books have been set in Vancouver mm -hmm. and it just felt so quintessentially Vancouver mm -hmm. and not easy to get a Canadian show, um, you know, to, to be able to shoot here because of course, um, you know, the American shows I'm sure can pay their crews more. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, the network, uh, to their credit, they really wanted it to be Vancouver. Um, and I'm so pleased. The crew, it was hilarious. Like one of the things that so many of the crew members loved about our show was the fact that they were able to shoot Vancouver for Vancouver because they'd never done that before. So particularly for people like the DOP, the production designer, like to be able to show off our city as our city um, was really rewarding. Mm -hmm. um, and our show, our, our city looks spectacular in our show. I mean, like I was trying to think the last show and I believe me, I could be wrong here, but the last shows I can think of that it were shot here were probably um, Chris Haddock's shows the Romeo section shot Vancouver for Vancouver I mean yeah yeah, um, yeah Da Vinci's um inquest uh, Romeo section um and like fabulous shows right but they mm -hmm. show one aspect of Vancouver and our show is very much the blue sky mountains um you know uh lotus lotus land I guess uh yeah version of Vancouver um, and it, we really got it on screen. Like I am super impressed. I think, <laughs> I think the show looks fabulous. That's great. I mean, cause I do think, you know, again, the, a sense of place is so important to these worlds that, you know, a show create, that a show presents, that a showrunner creates. And it is true that Vancouver is an exceptionally beautiful city with so many things happening at once, right? Like you have this gorgeous skyline, you have the mountains, you have the ocean. But then again, it's like, because of the the needs of production, you'll only focus on one of those things. Whereas, you know, now instead it's like, here's Kitsilano, right? <laughs> like here's, here are these places, these, and, and here's the, the feeling of those places, which is really lovely. Yeah. I was so excited when we actually got to shoot down at Jericho beach, for example, you know, mm -hmm. which is my, my beach. Um, 
And, and that said, of course, our studio and our law offices are mm -hmm. in Langley, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. so we had to shoot, um, you know, I think it was 60% outside the zone. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, but we made the other 40% really work for us, which was great. That's great. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Now, I mean, in terms of, because I know uh, Robson Arms also took place uh, in Vancouver as well. That's right. Um, did you find that, like, I mean, and it, you know what, actually, I'm going to, I'm going to go even wider in terms of scope, but I mean, it's like, you've, you know, you've worked in television, in Canadian television for quite a while. You know, you were on Degrassi, original, <laughs> original recipe, Degrassi Next Gen. Um, you know, you've obviously, uh, I think you even, you did Ready or Not, like you've done, you've done. I'm old, JP, I'm old, <laughs> just say it. Listen, I am, I am only <laughs> listing these credits because they're classics. They are classics, they are amazing shows, important to me. Um, but you know what I mean? But also too, but like also Heartland, also like you've done, you've done a lot of television. Ha as you've, you know, been moving through this process, you know, there's been so much, there's been so much discussion around Canadian shows, Canadian production, the challenges of getting a Canadian show made. Have you found kind of through your collective experience in the industry, have you found that getting a Canadian, a Canadian specific, Canadian focused show made, is it getting more difficult? Is it harder? I mean, I know it's a really broad question, but I, it is something that I'm, I'm always curious about in terms of, you know, with the changes that have been brought about by streamers, with the changes that have been brought about by kind of, again, whether it's like, you know, tax incentives that bring Americans over, like these things shift the industry and you always wonder like, is it harder to tell Canadian stories or is it easier? God, I mean, it's, it's a great question. And I, um, I, I, I mean, I don't have the answer. Um, I guess I can only speak to my own experience. You know, quite honestly, um, probably at, a, actually probably around the um, 2014 point um, when uh, family law didn't move forward, um, which, which I am actually very grateful for. And I'll try to remember to circle back to that. Yeah. Um, but I realized at that point, like, okay, so Robson Arms, like Robson Arms, I think we finished Robson Arms in 2007. It was a long time ago. Um, and from that period forward, like so many writers, I'm glad we're talking about this because like so many writers, I have pitched so many ideas that didn't even get a development deal. And then I've pitched a pile of ideas that did go into development, mm -hmm. like quite a lot um, over the years. And where I'd write a script, uh, maybe two scripts at the most, um, and none of those shows. Um, went, you know, got greenlit to production. And I don't say that with any bitterness, like, because that's, that is pretty much everybody's experience in our industry, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I did hit a point um, after family law, actually, I remember I, <laughs> I had lunch with a producer who I, who I won't name, um, who, who basically told me, you know, nobody's picking up what you're putting down, Susan. Like nobody's nobody's interested in what you seem to be interested in writing. And, um, uh, you know, I thought about that. At first I thought, fuck you. Um, and then I thought, hmm, you know, this person does have a point. If you look at my history, everything I'm putting forward is not what people are picking up right now. And I came to the conclusion that I was actually okay with that. And I decided um, my books were doing reasonably well at that point, because I had uh, started, my first book was published in um, 2008. And um, I thought, you know, they are picking up what I'm putting down in that world. And that world seems to be going pretty well for me. And I was starting to, you know, get some good fortune in terms of uh, 
getting published in different countries and, you know, getting invited to go different places and do uh, stuff um, in, uh, in other countries, etc. And so I just decided I'm going to put my creative energies into that. Um, and I was very content with that. Um, and so when 724 called me and said, we want to repitch this show, I thought, yeah, okay, whatever. Well, you know, they're going to give me a free trip to Banff. Um, that'll be fun. I'll see the mountains. Um, and so this whole journey has been a honestly as big a surprise to me as probably anybody else. Um, I, you know, not to sound arrogant, I know our scripts are really good. I feel very, I feel very um, pleased with the work we've done. Um, I'm glad the show was made now and not in 2014 because I think I've become a better writer. I think I become, I think I go deeper mm -hmm. into character. Um, I think if we'd done it in 2014, we wouldn't have wound up with Jewel State as our star. And mm -hmm. she is phenomenal. And she is, nobody else could have played Abby. She's yeah. incredible. Um, Your cast is amazing. Like there is like, I just, <sighs> <laughs> it's, it's like running the list down. I was like, holy cow. Like, again, it's like the Victor Garber was like, wow. But I'm like, tell me about again, it. All of it was like, this is, this is a stacked cast, right? They are phenomenal. Janelle Williams and Zach Smedu. We've got the wonderful Bobby Charlton out here as well. I'm so, oh, I'm just like, my head explodes just uh, thinking about all of them. Um, our wonderful transgender uh, office manager. We've got Brett Kelly, who was the little kid on Bad Santa, <laughs> who's absolutely <laughs> hilarious. Um, we've got a great cast. But um, uh, my my point again, my good Lord, I'm so sorry for whoever has to edit this. Um, <laughs> I, mean, I hope they just let it roll. I'm having a, I'm having a great time. So. <laughs> I'm having a great time too. God only knows what, what a listener will think. But, but you know, my point is that you, you just, I don't think any of us knows what, like why it's what William Golden said that, right? Nobody knows anything. Like, I thought I was done in this business. I really did. And I, and I was okay with that. And I, I do think sometimes too, I think, I like to think it's changing, but I think that sometimes this business is also not kind as you get older. I'm in my fifties now. And I think um, sometimes it's very easy for you to get, you know, uh, pushed aside. I do think that's changing. Um, but I think like, my story is just, I think it's a positive story because what it shows is that you never know mm -hmm. when it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And like I say, in a million years, I never thought this was going to happen. Like even through the, all the phases of development, I thought, well, this is nice. We're getting a bit more developed. Well, they're giving us more development, but you know, but yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't know if it's harder. I, I mean, it's never been easy, right? It's never mm -hmm. been easy to actually get a show greenlit. Mm -hmm. um, it feels like we've got more places to go to, mm -hmm. but I don't know if it's, yeah. See, there you go. That was a super, super long-winded answer. No, no, that, no. That's, that basically wound up, up being, I don't know. <laughs> Listen, but I mean, you you hit on you hit on so many aspects, like so many things that I wanted to talk about, which is like you know, and and I mean, a certain a certain feature of your career is also resiliency, right? Like, I mean, the, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, it's like you know, the ability to, and this is a thing, is that like so often I think as writers, it's like we're kind of told to pick a lane to be like, okay, you know, you're gonna do the comedy thing, you're gonna do the drama thing, you're gonna write books, you're gonna write screenplays, like we're kind of told that we have to do one thing and then that's it. And I think what's really fascinating about, you know, your biography about kind of the, the path you've taken is that you found different creative outlets 
um, you still continue to write, you are a writer, but you find different creative outlets for your voice, which I find really fascinating. And I think really encouraging to a lot of writers so that they can recognize, you know, hey, if the, if the industry itself isn't necessarily biting at kind of what you're pitching or what you're putting out there, there are other avenues or other places where you can tell stories, right? That's a really nice way of putting it. I was when you said I was resilient, I was thinking, yes, I'm like a cockroach. Uh, but I, I, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna I want to, I want to tell you. I almost spit my water out. Sorry, it's just like <laughs> unexpected, unexpected. Um, JP, I'm gonna tell you a little story. Yes, please do. You can settle, settle back. Another one that they can cut out if they want to. Um, but, but, you know, I just because I do feel like, you know, now that I am, I feel like, you know, I'm at the, you know, uh, well, I'm not, I don't, I don't want to say I'm at the twilight, in the twilight years quite yet. I'm 56. So I think, you know, I've got some time to go. But, um, you know, I'm, I can definitely look at my career with a different perspective now. And so I do, I do feel like, um, uh, you know, just I suppose like offering encouragement because I know that often this industry is very discouraging, right? Mm -hmm. um, but like, I do remember uh, Robson Arms, we were, uh, we just, I think we'd finished shooting the second season. Um, we were not a priority for the network. You know, we were the little show that, I mean, we were never meant to be beyond a first season, um, mm -hmm. that show. And then we happened to do well enough that, they, they gave us a second season, but there was this long period of time. I'm talking probably six months where um, we didn't know when they were going to air season two. We weren't getting an air date. We weren't getting an air date. We weren't getting an air date. We didn't know if they were going to renew us. Um, and I was um, bored out of my nut, mildly depressed. Um, nobody was calling the phone wasn't ringing because I think if anybody even did think of me if they thought of me at all they thought oh oh but she's she's got her own show so she's not going to want to come do anything on our show um and I was driving my husband crazy you know he'd come home at the end of the day and we still haven't heard from the network and I don't know what they're doing and they're they're being so mean to us and then it just sort of I don't know, I just remember that this lightning bolt kind of hit me one day and I thought, you're a writer. Who or what are you waiting for? Quit being such a fucking whiner and sit down and write something. All you need is your laptop and an idea and write something. And so that was actually when I started writing um, my first book and I just decided okay you know I've got nothing else on the go I've always wanted to try something like that so try it and I gave myself a goal of four pages a day um, and you know the rest is history as they say but I just I think that um, I think what's really hard in our industry is that we are so we are so often, we are beholden to a whole pile of other gatekeepers, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think sometimes the thing that can keep you at least partially sane is if you can find that thing that you do feel passionate about, that you do want to try, even if, even if nothing happens with it. If you've always wanted to write a musical, mm -hmm. you know? If you've always wanted to write a book, if you've always wanted to write your memoir, well, you know, just do that too. And like you were saying, you know, people do want to put you in a box in our business. And, um, and uh, I mean, that gets so creatively stifling too, right? I mean, I think also too, it's like we're experiencing a very exciting time where stories that for the longest time weren't being told um, are being told because more perspectives are being allowed in rooms, more, more voices are being engaged with within the industry, right? So I do think it is really interesting, and I say this kind of just building on what you said, where it's like the idea, like, we are placed in these boxes within the industry, but by nurturing your voice and following your kind of creative, that creative voice within yourself, 
eventually opportunities do present themselves. You know what I mean? So sometimes, sometimes you kind of have to be the first person to do the thing and then eventually the industry might catch up, right? Do you agree with yeah, that? Yeah, I think that, no, I think that's a really good way to put it. And you were, you were just making me think about, um, you know, all the, all the great shows that we now have access to that, as you point out, you know, are giving us, you know, fresh new perspectives that we're hopefully going to see more and more of, you know, and quite frankly, like in our industry here in Canada, less and less of, you know, people who <laughs> look like me. Um, but, uh, you know, I was just thinking about um, I May Destroy You, for oh example, gosh. just Holy as one, one example, right? Yeah. And I, I feel like... Um, I, I still think we don't necessarily do a great job with going the, um, that outside the box yet mm -hmm. here, but that partly, and that I'm, I'm casting no blame because, you know, conventional networks want conventional network fare, you know? Mm -hmm. um, although I think that that is also shifting and hopefully starting to look a little different. Mm -hmm. um, but uh yeah, I mean, it's possible that we don't have as many opportunities to pitch the things that are really uh, outside the box. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that for sure. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know. I've never, like, I, like really, like, I've never pitched anything to Netflix. So I don't know. Maybe, mm -hmm. maybe Netflix is a place that you can go with that stuff or um, without having to go to the States, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. ideally, again, again, this loops us right back to family law. It's like, it is wonderful to be able to tell Canadian stories and make them Canadian, like have them be like, it's not like in an anonymous city in an anonymous place. Like this is, this is a story that's very much tied to like an experience of Vancouver, a family within Vancouver, a people who are experiencing familial trauma and navigating that trauma together in this particular city, which I think is 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 really great. Yes, although we do have uh, what we like to call TV law, so it's not Canadian <laughs> law. It's just we call it. TV law. And we, we always have the benchmark. We, we joked in the room all the time about, um, I don't, did you see Big Little Lies season two? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and you know, I mean, I think David E. Kelly, like, used to be a lawyer, too. Yeah, I'm um, pretty sure he was. Yeah. And so yeah. Um, uh, how, like, their law, the stuff in the courtroom scene with um, Nicole Kidman and uh, Meryl Streep, like... <laughs> That bore no resemblance to reality. <laughs> so we would always joke, like, like if we were coming up with something, we're like, yeah, I don't know if we can get away with that. Or like our, one of our consultants would say, uh, that would never happen. And we would always say, big little lies, people. <laughs> like we always figured, well, if big, big little lies set the bar for disbelief up here and ours is here. <laughs> Then we're doing okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, you you, you ha at the end of the day, you have to service the story, right? You have to well, be able to tell, yes. tell tell something that's dynamic and that reflects the characters and the journeys that they're on. And I mean, you know, obviously, you don't want to make it like Wizard of Ozland law, but it's like if you can make it as close <laughs> as close as possible and give a satisfying conclusion to whatever story you're telling, I think that that's that's what every storyteller kind of wants to do, right? So. Yeah. Um, right on. I, I, I mean, I'm just trying to think kind of off the top of my head. I, 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 the, I guess the one other thing that I wanted to ask of you, and I feel like you kind of touched on this already, um, but you know, for any uh, kind of new screenwriters who are, uh, whether they are emerging, they are starting out, maybe they have their first couple gigs, or maybe this is like, they are writing spec, they are, you know, they have yet to show anybody their screenwriting work but are looking for kind of some inspiration from someone who, you know, has found success within the industry. What, what is, what is, what is some advice you could impart to them? Well, I would say, um, uh, for sure have a really strong sample. That's absolutely the thing that you want to do. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and then have the sam strong sample that is uh, of a reasonably 
well-known show um, because that helps people to see, okay, they can actually write other characters' voices as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I mean, really my highest recommendation in Canada would be um, to uh, submit your work to a program like Canadian Film Center, mm-hmm. or now out here in Vancouver, we've got the Pacific Screenwriting Program. Mm-hmm. Um, these are fabulous programs. Um, you know, I nabbed uh, one of my Robson Arms writers from the Canadian Film Center um, on Robson, on uh, on Family Law. Corey Liu yeah. came through the Pacific Screenwriting Program, yeah. and uh, in our this phase of development, um, uh, our junior in the room, our script coordinator, also came from the Pacific Screenwriting Program, Kasim Fazal. Mm-hmm. Um, so those, those programs get you noticed and they get you put in front of, first of all, just by getting into that program, I think it says something about the quality of your writing mm-hmm. that people are seeing that you've got some talent. Mm-hmm. And then you get put in front of a lot of people in the industry, a lot of people in the industry come to talk to those classes, teach those classes, et cetera. Um, and, you know, you wind up, it's it's definitely a huge leg up. And people graduating from those programs also tend to have the agents sniffing around, right? And then you mm-hmm. get representation. So um, I think that's the best thing you can do for yourself. Because nice. then you're also getting training, right? And you're 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 learning, and yeah, what's not to like? It's great. Yeah, you're 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 essentially you know you're you're engaging with folks who are the gatekeepers who can kind of give you access to other opportunities, which are fantastic. Yeah, um, Susan, this has been such a pleasure. I've been really, I like, I honestly, I could keep going, <laughs> but I feel like, I, I feel like the WGC is like, okay, you, you've done enough now. <laughs> um, but I, but thank you so much again for your, for your time and for, you know, for chatting with me today. Um, I'm very excited to see the show and I wish, I wish you folks all the very best. I hope it's incredibly successful. I hope it runs for a billion seasons. <laughs> oh, um, and, uh, and yeah. And, and do you actually, do you have a premiere date yet? Is that, we don't. Um, okay. Chorus is talking about April. Okay. Um, yeah. So uh, I'm, you know, I'm still hoping that we might get on before then, just because, you know, there's. I don't. I think that there's uh, probably, hopefully, a need for content right now. I would love for our show to air in the darkness of January when everybody's hunkered <laughs> down at home anyway, forced to be hunkered down at home. Take advantage of that seasonal affective disorder. Have exactly. everybody kind of come to your show. Uh, uh, but yeah, no, that's that's amazing. And, and obviously, uh, you know, when the show does premiere, the WGC and, ver- and myself will all amplify it. So uh, uh, thank you. Uh, best of luck. Thank you so much. Uh, and, and yeah, thank you. Thank you today. Thank you, JP. You've been listening to Cut To, a podcast from the Writers Guild of Canada. Thanks again to the wonderful Susan Nielsen for an informative and spirited discussion. I'm JP LaRock, and I'm going to take a nap. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.